Welcome to the South Elkhorn Christian Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the weekly messages. For bulletin material, reflection guides, and other resources, visit southelkhorncc.org. Job has found his footing in his suffering. When we last left Job, this is part four of a five-part sermon series through the book of Job. And if you're just joining, just joining this morning for the first time, uh, do a brief recap to remember where we are and to prepare ourselves for what's about to happen next. And if you're interested in diving more into the messages that, that preceded this one, you can find, again, those messages on the website. You can find those messages on the South Elkhorn Sermon Podcast, just the audio portion of those messages that are, um, that are sent there each week. So I would encourage you uh, to, to, to dig deeper into the story of Job that way. But as we, la- we laughed, last left Job, Job was declaring before God, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job has found his footing in his suffering, and even as he names his suffering, even as he defies his suffering, he has this kind of hope that there's a different way of understanding God, that perhaps God will be the rescuer of Job in his distress and anguish. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job is, has gone through tremendous suffering. And the passage of scripture we're just about to read, Job recounts his suffering, verses 29, 30, and then we're gonna read from 31. In, verse, in chapters 29, uh, Job basically explains again that it, he wishes for the day, for the time before this tragedy and calamity that befell him. He wishes he could go back to the good old days. Oh, that I had everything that I had before. By way of reminder, Job, this righteous person, had this terrible tragedy, calamity befall him. He, his family perished in a series of, of, of calamities and catastrophes, both natural with fire and wind and human with invading armies. He lost his possessions and his great wealth, his livestock, his animals, his house. And then, to add insult to injury, these sores covered his body and his health declined. He had felt utterly destroyed. And if we remember back to the first words that Job utters after he goes through this time of silence, this time of what, what one theologian calls mute suffering, when he begins to give voice to his suffering, he goes through the intensity of those first words and he says, cursing the day of his birth, it would have been better if creation itself would have imploded if I had never been. But as I mentioned before, what we're watching is not so much an explanation of Job's suffering as it is the question, now what? What happens to Job in this arc of suffering that he's going through? Well, from mute suffering to speaking suffering in a place of despair to then shifting still in speaking suffering to a place of defiance, recovering his footing, a sense of self in who he is, and saying, I don't deserve this. God, answer me. Rescue my understanding and my being from this calamity. Present yourself to me. And in 
chapter 29, Job rehearses this. In chapter, chapters 30 and 31, Job then again makes his case as to why he doesn't deserve this suffering. So we'll read from chapter 31, a couple of verses, and verse 35 through 37 in Job 31. And then we'll skip ahead and read what happens next. Job chapter 31, verses 35 through 37. Oh, oh, that I had one to hear me, Job says. Here is my signature. I've signed my name to my petition. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. I demand an audience with God. Oh, that I had the indictment, that I had my charges written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me like a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince. I would approach him. Write down the charges. I will take them on. We're skipping ahead about seven chapters to see what happens next because in these intervening chapters, apparently there have been more than just Job's friends who have been with him. By way of reminder, in Job's suffering, he has three friends who learn of the calamity, who learn of the disaster, who learn of the tragedy and trauma, who come to him and sit with him in their silence and then sadly begin to offer their, their wisdom and advice, which Job rejects and refutes. And we come to find out there's actually another person who's just been sitting back, the worst, I mean, just the worst kind of friend. The one who's maybe not even in the room with Job. The one who's just heard about what's going on and who has just kind of watched from a distance and then jumps in and gives all the same bad advice over and over and over again and fights with the person who's going through the tragedy and the trauma. In fact, some, some Biblical scholars aren't even sure that these, I mean, these seven chapters are so awful and so terrible and this friend is so bad that they're not even sure this was original to Job. Like, come on, this just doesn't make sense. And I love this, that in chapter 38, it's almost like God cuts off the friend. Let's read, in, let's read 38, verses one through 11. Just before that, the friend is talking, the talking is talking, and then, Job, and then we read this. Then the Lord answered Job. Sorry, Elihu, whoever you are. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And I don't want to skip past that too quickly. Then, God, then the Lord answered Job. Then the Lord answered. This defiant Job who has said, I demand an audience. I demand a hearing. I want nothing more than to just see you. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now what I'm about to do next is an interpretation because I think tone matters. And I think there are multiple ways of reading what happens next with different tone and I think tone says a lot about how we understand God. And the way I might have read this before doing this deep dive into Job is from that hurricane force power of the whirlwind with a mighty, with a mighty tone that would have put Job in his place and I might have missed something else that might be going on here. That in some ways what, what is about to happen next is God putting Job in God's place, but not from a place of power and lording over Job, but perhaps from a place of compassion and an invitation for Job to see something new. Who is this that darkens counsel by words 
without knowledge. Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if, if you have understanding, who, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its, it, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the heavenly beings shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the wound, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stopped. And then in verse 25, who, who has cut a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no one lives? On the desert, which is empty of human life, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground, nevertheless, put forth grass. The word of God for the people of God. If only you knew some of the conversations and some of the exchanges I have just before coming on to stage to lead worship. It's amazing. And never ceases to have a little bit of the spirit at work in some of these conversations and exchanges. Today, um, Jane Phillips kindly wanted to, wanted to share something with me and wanted to give something to me, and I said, oh, the spirit's moving, Jane. This, this may make it into the sermon. This is amazing. She showed me this strawberry. <laughs> it's a single strawberry. And I said, Jane, this will preach. <laughs> Thank you. I needed an introduction. This is a strawberry. And what's amazing about this strawberry is not how good it's going to taste when I eat it. What's amazing about this, though that is, I can't wait. Um, what's amazing about this strawberry is how ridiculous it is, how big it is, how excessive it is, how gratuitous it is, which is exactly what God is doing when God responds to Job. Hey, Job, I know you have these questions. I know you're demanding an audience. I want to show you something. And like a giddy child who's showing off a brand new present or a brand new thing or something they've done, God's like, come here, Job, take a look at this. Verse, those last verses we read where, where God is like, you know the desert, the wasteland? You know what I do? It rains there. Can you believe that? No one lives there. It doesn't benefit any human person. And it rains. Isn't that amazing? On the one hand, Job's like, what are you talking about? Have you not been listening? I think God has been listening. And I think God is doing something really, really important. And I said before, I didn't want to skip too quickly past the fact that God answers Job. I mentioned that Job went through a time of silent suffering. 
that Job went through a time of despairing suffering, that Job is, has, is found his footing in his suffering, has recovered a sense of self. It's no longer I want to die. Now it's this isn't right, a defiant suffering. And God is there to hear all of that and doesn't turn away. God isn't offended. God isn't mad. God doesn't say you watch your mouth. God says, I've been listening, and I have something to show you. And yes, the beginning of wisdom, as it's been said, uh, half of wisdom is the question, and God peppers Job with questions. Questions that are meant to help break Job out of his frame of reference, to break open Job's vision, as one commentator put it, to help Job see things in a different way, because I want to I suggest that Job is moving from despair to defiance, and God is inviting Job into delight. Now, if you've been through the kind of suffering that Job's been through, if you've gone through that trauma and tragedy, it makes perfect sense to go through the stages of grief and loss and pain and anguish that, that Job has been through. And what God invites Job to see is that that isn't everything. That God hears and understands and is with Job in his suffering. And, and, and there's grace in God just answering Job and saying, I'm there, I hear you haven't offended me. At the very beginning of, of Job, we get the question, Do, will Job love God for no good reason or is there something in it for Job? I wonder if we flip that question on its head. Will God love Job and all creation for no good reason or is there something in it for God? You gotta talk the right way for God. You gotta act the right way for God. You gotta make the right sacrifices for God. And isn't that kind of what Job is doing in Job chapter one? If you recall in Job chapter one, Job is this the best helicopter parent you can possibly imagine. Job offers preemptive sacrifices for his kids just in case they might have had a wayward thought they didn't give voice to. You want to make sure all the ducks are in a row so that no one is on the wrong side of God and we can continue to enjoy the blessings of God's favor. And God answers Job and we wonder, what's in it for God? And we see as God points Job to the wonder and magnificence and gratuitousness and excessiveness and crazy beauty of creation that cannot be tamed or contained, that there is still beauty and goodness outside the suffering of Job. That Job's suffering is not the end of the story. That God is there and that life can still be good. Now what, Job, what God is not saying is that Job's suffering doesn't matter. What, what God is not saying is, and there's a good reason for your suffering, what God is not saying is, I'm gonna explain all your suffering away. God says, Job, what if, what if the universe doesn't revolve around you? And what if that's good news? See, one of the temptations of, of human life is to make ourselves the center of the universe. In fact, it was, a shock to the, it was a shock to the theological conscience when Galileo suggested, I mean, maybe 
the earth revolves around the sun and the sun doesn't revolve around us. That was a shock to the theological conscience because aren't we the center, the pinnacle, the greatness of God's creation? Doesn't everything revolve around us? And God is like, I make it rain where there's no human beings. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? I delight for no good reason in the beauty of creation and I also delight in you. I suffer when you suffer and I want joy and goodness and beauty for you and I'm letting you know that it's still there, Job. You have found your footing in your suffering and you're saying you don't deserve this and I'm saying you're right. Come and live again. Come join me in the beauty of creation. I'm not gonna diminish or deplete or suggest that you just move on from your suffering. What I'm gonna say is your suffering is connected to something bigger, that purpose still exists for you, that joy can still be had, that you can enjoy creation and that maybe it's worth risking love again because love is love for no good reason. And I love you, Job. I'm not put off by all that you've been through and all that you've said. I'm not gonna talk you out of your words like your friends tried to do because you shouldn't dare question God. I hear you and you wanted an audience with me and I am here and maybe I'm more than you possibly ever imagined. I love that the language of creation is what God draws on in this response to Job for two reasons. One, Remember when Job was despairing, Job was using the language of creation to, to kind of implode creation from within. When God said, let there be light in Genesis 1, Job says, let there be darkness. And, it's, and, and God is redeeming and reusing and inviting Job back into the very thing he wanted to reject and destroy and says, no, 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 there's more here and you can't control it. That is both the beauty and the challenge of life. And I know you want to control things, Job. I know that that's what you've made your, your life about, this focus on your particular community, on just your family, on making sacrifices just for them, and on thinking that somehow that controls things so that you are protected from suffering and pain and torment. And I'm sorry, that's not how the world works. But that doesn't mean that suffering is all there is. There's more. Did I mention I make it rain in the desert? It's also powerful that God uses this creation imagery because God also uses imagery that is from the building and the description of the temple. When, when, when uh, God speaks of the stars singing and the shouts of joy, that's some of the way that the, the, the construction of the temple was described. When, when, when jo, uh, God talks about the, the foundations being laid and the cornerstone, that's temple language. God is saying creation is a temple of beauty and wonder and grandeur. I want to show you something different, Job. A woman was sharing her experience about um, a friend of hers who had been through uh, breast cancer. And uh, she was back at the doctor and this friend came with her and they sat before the doctor and the doctor shared with this friend, I'm really sorry to tell you this, you, you have colon cancer. 
And her friend did something so natural and so understandable. She just hunched in, in this self-protective, curved-in posture. Which is what happens in times of suffering and grief and loss. We're vulnerable, we're fragile, we're hurting, we're grieving, we're unsure, we're uncertain. And so we we do, even physically, what's happening within us emotionally and spiritually and psychologically. We're, we're, We're holding on to ourselves, we're protecting ourselves. And that's good and that's okay and that's right. And what God is doing with Job is inviting Job not to be stuck there. As Job moves from despair to defiance, a kind of relaxing of his shoulders and saying, wait, this isn't right. I demand an audience with God to God saying, yes, you're right. That way of framing it, that way of trying to make sense of it, that way of trying to control it and then regain control of it is is not right. Now take a step and see what's beyond your suffering. See that you can live again. It's not going to be the same. It's going to be different but it's there. The world doesn't revolve around your suffering. The world doesn't revolve around you. And that is humbling and it is good news. I love you, Job. I'm with you. I hear you. Did I mention it rains in the desert? Indeed, I want to suggest this morning that what we're seeing in Job is an arc of transformation, that these forms of suffering, from mute suffering to speaking suffering to changing suffering, is one way to understand what's going on with Job. Another way is to understand that Job is having a transformation of his understanding of who God is, that we're seeing God revealed in a different kind of way, not through the traditional forms of exchange that often dominate religious ways of thinking, that some of the very traditional religious ways of understanding God are being put into the mouths of Job's friends, being put into this joker Elihu. I mean, just, just go read it. It's, oh, it's disastrous. And even, into, even Job is wrestling with this. And when God speaks from the whirlwind, the whirlwind, you can't control, huh? you can't tame a whirlwind. God is saying, yes, there's chaos, but there's, and there's, there's freedom you can't control in the world that is more complicated and complex, but there's also something beautiful there, which is why I read God's tone as one of compassion and invitation. I want you to see something different, Job. Now, this is not a textbook on um, psychological care. It's not like someone walks, you know, well, now I'm in despair and... In a moment, I'll be in defiance, and next, I'm coming into delight. That's not, I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting, what I am suggesting is that there's an invitation to see who God is. There's an invitation to see ourselves in the context of creation. There's an invitation to put our suffering into a greater purpose and a greater context. Not because God orchestrated our suffering, not because God wanted us to suffer, but because God can redeem can use suffering again, can help us relax our shoulders, find our footing. And when the time is right, and when we're ready, take a step into the risk, 
into the chaos, into the beautiful mess that is loving again. So we leave Job wondering, does Job buy it? Is Job convinced? Is Job satisfied? What will Job do next? Of course, it's not just a question for Job. It's a question for us too. Do we buy it? Are we satisfied by it? What will we do next? Thanks for listening to the message this week. Visit southelkorncc.org where you can download reflection and discussion guides to dig deeper into the weekly scripture and message.